The thoughts and opinions expressed on Halal Money Matters do not necessarily reflect the views of Saturna Capital, Amanda Mutual Funds, or their affiliates. Welcome to Halal Money Matters, sponsored by Saturna Capital. I'm Munim Salam, and I am the only one today. We don't have a co-host uh, this time around. Our guest is uh, Yasser Berjas, and uh, he actually studied in Medina, uh, came back to the U.S., and was an imam in El Paso uh, before moving to Dallas and becoming the imam of the Valley Ranch Mosque. The topic today is about mahar or the wedding gift that a Muslim gives. And so there's a lot of, you know, cultural nuances that are there. Uh, and so we really wanted to dig a little bit deeper to figure out, you know, what's required, what's not required, what's mythology, what's cultural, those type of things. And I think there's a great show, so let's get into it. Chef Yasser, thank you very much for, for joining us today. It's, been, it's really an honor to have you here. When I was thinking about this topic of mahar and how it applies from a complete perspective, in fact, you were the first person I thought of. So let's uh, maybe just jump right into it. The idea of mahar itself, right? Where does it show up in either Quran, Sunnah, and a little bit of the history and those type of things? So the word of mahar itself, uh, it's uh, um, a triliteral uh, in a root word, which has come from the meme and the ha and the ra, mahar. Basically, it's kind of like more like a, 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 the price, the value. That's what it means. And it has multiple words in the Arabic language. There are words such as sadaq is also used for the mahar, for example. Uh, there is al-ajr, which is another word for it as well, too. So different words actually was used for that. It's not really about the word itself. It's the concept of it that mattered to them at the time. So the, it's more of like a, the, in good faith, you're providing a symbolic value to show the commitment. For the relationship did it used to be around before the time of the prophet as well or was that something that was instituted uh, with islam it was it was actually before the time of the prophet وسلم, it was a cultural thing at the time and in islam of course anything that's considered cultural and valuable and endorsed by the sharia sharia usually endorse it and will accept that but if anything would be offensive or run contrary to the principle of sharia will cancel that so this principle of mahar, it doesn't sound to be like contrary to any of the rules of the Sharia. As a matter of fact, it's it's enforcement of it. So the man, the gentleman comes, of course, and his family, they come in good faith, showing, you know, that they would like to present something of value uh, for the family of the bride, for the bride, obviously. So it's a symbolic thing. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned that in the Quran as well, too. He says, قال, uh, in, in, in Surah An-Nisa, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, قال, And the word that was used for it is sadaq. Allah says to the awliya, now the awliya, give the women their sadaqatihinna, which means their mahar, nihla, as absolute gift. What does that mean? So the command from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes to speaking to the third party in a plural form. You, all of you, give the women their sadaq, their mahar, as a bridal gift. So who are these people Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addressing the command to? The two categories, two parties. Number one, the wali, which means her family, her father, or whoever actually is representing her in the relationship, in the marriage, and also the husband and his family. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is commanding everybody who's involved in that to observe that haqq and the right of the woman. And he says, qal nihla, which means absolutely pure gift, meaning there's no strings attached. No one has any affiliation with it. No one has the right to access it except for that lady. So the bridal gift is actually the bridal gift. It's her haq and it's her right. So overall, we say that the mar in itself was made a symbolic thing when the family of the groom, they come and they are proposed to the girl and the lady. 
they would like to show in good faith, of course, you know, they would like to present something symbolic. Uh, unfortunately, over time, obviously, the symbolism of Mahar died out and it becomes more of like a, a, there is a, so much emphasis on the, on the amount of Mahar itself. It became itself the value of the family and the value of the girl herself. So people, they start kind of like uh, showing how much they value your family, how much they value the girl by gauging the prices, of course, and the amounts of Mahar. To the extent that it becomes astronomical numbers that no one is can afford anymore, unfortunately. So it's not good to do that. Looking at it just from a purely time of the prophet perspective, what form of gift did it take? And mm. I think we have examples of some people giving very little and of other course. people giving a lot. And then it wasn't only money. Sometimes it was like a memorization of an ayah or something like that. I think different, different values for the mar. I mean, let's first of all talk about what's mentioned in the Quran. So we see the example of the Prophet. Yeah. So uh, uh, in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the context of, of the mahr, he says, and if you've given one of them a qantar, a qantar is just like saying a treasure. So from that, the ulama, they say there is no really specific maximum to it. You can give uh, as much as you want, as long as a person can comfortably afford that. So he said qantar. Hmm. That's an example. Uh, from the son of the Prophet wasallam, there are multiple examples of something that was big and something that was small. The amount that is considered big as well is an example of Thabit uh, ibn Qais ibn Shammas uh, when he got married, you know, at some point, his wife was not happy with this relationship. She came to the Prophet Sallallahu uh, I have nothing against his akhlaq, his deen, like he's, mashallah, he's an amazing man. I'm concerned about myself. If I stay in this relationship, I might commit kufr. Now, the ulama, they say, what kind of kufr are you talking about? Some, they say the actual kufr, like I'm going to lose it. I'm going to lose my deen because of that. Other, they say, no, she means by that, I won't be able to give him his haq like al -ashir. she denies her husband's rights sure. because I can stand him I don't like him sure. so the Prophet وسلم, did not, he, he did not scold the lady and says come on and he, what are you talking about uh, a thousand women would wish to have a man like him as her husband he didn't say anything of that stuff he reached out to him he goes your wife she's asking for khula to divorce her so the first thing that he said Qala hadiqati. what about the mahar I gave her I gave her an entire garden when you say about entire garden, you're talking about an orchard. Like you're talking about maybe, I don't know, God knows, thousands probably maybe of dollars of our time's sure. value. So it was a big thing. So the prophet told the lady, would you give it back to him? She said, yeah, sure, I give it back to him. He goes, okay, bismillah, and, and, and the, the divorce was done and it was over. So the idea here from this hadith is the prophet, sallam, he, uh, I mean, the, the, the sahabi, radallahu, he offered an, an, an entire garden, an entire orchard as a bridal gift. But there's also another narration in Sahih Bukhari Muslim as well, in which the Prophet Sallallahu one day, he uh, was sitting with a group of the Sahaba, a lady approached, and she offered herself in marriage to the Prophet Sallallahu which was allowed for the Prophet Sallallahu to accept or to consider, I would say, if he wanted, as was mentioned in Surah Al-Ahzab. Yeah. So the Prophet Sallallahu uh, this lady approached the Prophet, قَالَتْ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ You know, I would like to يعني, approach you in marriage. Uh, Imam al-Bukhari, he commented in this hadith, Anas, عنه, he goes, this is a chapter on the permissibility of a woman approaching a man in marriage if she sees goodness or righteousness in him. Mm -hmm. So eventually she came to the Prophet وسلم, she offered herself in marriage, and the Prophet وسلم, kind of felt a little bit shy, yeah, meaning that like he wasn't interested, and he kind of looked down. She said that three times, and the Prophet kept kind of looking down, feeling so shy to tell her yes or no, or at least yeah. let her go. 
Eventually, the lady, she kind of got the message, but then she didn't go anywhere else. She sat down. When she sat down, I mean, it was kind of like an awkward situation. A man was sitting there with the Prophet So he, he said, قَالَ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ Like, if you're, Ya Rasulullah, if you're not interested, can I marry her? And the Prophet looks at the lady. I mean, if you're, if you're interested, this guy is proposing. And the lady, she said, yeah. I mean, she didn't have any problem either. So the Prophet told him, go and get her something as a bridal gift. So the man, he went looking around. He couldn't find anything. came back, قَالَ رسول الله, I have nothing. So the Prophet told him, قَالْ If it was just a, a, a steel ring, like what value of a steel ring is it going to be anyway? He says, go anything. So the man, he went and he looked and he called Rasulullah, the only thing I have is my loincloth, the one that I'm wrapping my waist with. And the Prophet says, what is she going to do with this? If she takes it away from you, you're going to walk around naked. Mm. The man also was frustrated, so he sat down. Then the Prophet ﷺ told this man, he says, هَلْ تَعْرِفُ سُورَةَ Do you know anything from the Qur'an? The man said, yeah, I know surah such and such and so and so. Uh, the Prophet said, You marry her with the condition you teach her the, what you know from the Qur'an. So the mahar can be of monetary value, as little as something of steel, very, very little value. Could be a treasure, such as a garden, or as Allah said in the Qur'an, Qintar, uh, which means treasure. And it could also be some sort of like a moral value, such as surahs from the Quran, a promise to take her to Hajj, which also involves, of course, you know, monetary value too, and, and these kind of things, or teach her something and so on. Okay. So again, it goes back again to the principle of, of, of Mahar being symbolic. That's the meaning of it. But just one question I had in the first hadith that you mentioned about the garden that was given, right? Mm -hmm. um, and this will come back to what we're talking about in this modern age. When Thabit, uh, when he gave the gift over to his wife, and you said it has to be an absolute, do we know, uh, was she kind of in charge of that garden from then on, what, what was happening to the garden and those type of things? Or was Thabit still in charge of it, but the ownership was with the wife? Well, Islamically speaking, as Allah says about the mahar, that it's nihla, which means it becomes her pure ownership. She owns the mahar completely. What is she going to do with the mahar? That's her business. If she's going, for example, to give that mahar in charity, if she's going to keep that mahar for herself, if she's going to give it back to her father, or if, even if she decided to give back some of it to her husband, as Allah says in the continuation of the ayah, if they, the ladies basically, are of, from good heart, they give back something for you, you can you can consume it. It's okay for you to do that. So from the story itself, we already know how what exactly the arrangement was, except that he gave her a big garden. And it was hers. It was hers uh, when uh, Thabit was concerned about his garden, obviously, that he gave her as a gift. Of course, it's not his anymore. Mm. But it was given to her um, in good faith, again, as a condition for the relationship, Right. So if she decided, you know what, I don't want that anymore. I, I quit. Yeah. Okay, so why are you, why are you going to keep the garden for? And that's where the khul'a is, is established in, 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 in the fiqh al-Islami. Okay. So again, it's her money, it's her wealth. She can do whatever she wants to do with it. Toy talked a little bit about now historically progression of the idea of mahar, mm -hmm. going from what you talked about before to now sometimes becoming more about the worth of the individual more than anything else. But I do remember either one of the companions or was the prophet that mentioned that you should give a mahar that's of a status for the woman. Because in the story that you mentioned with the, where the companion gave the ayah or teaching the ayah of the Quran, no. it's, it's supposing that he had nothing else to give. Well, it's true. But once again, the Prophet mentioned that hadith is that like, 
اقلهن مؤونه اكثرهن بركه the less the the, the expenses the more the baraka okay. so the prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم himself he was encouraging people to take it easy with the mahar i see so the mahar is not the value of the lady or her family but culturally speaking people are looking at it that way i see so if someone wants to show them how much they value they value their family and their daughter so they're going to bring a big gift for example um and then also the family of the girl they started also considering proposals based on how much people value them. Mm-hmm. Therefore, they are not going to give their daughter, for example, for $1,000 my first. Yeah. They're not going to give her for, for $10,000, uh, you know, uh, mahar if someone can pay $50,000 or $100,000. Outrageous amount sometimes, this is unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that discourages people from getting married, obviously, because it's too much, too much of a burden. And the Prophet ﷺ was asking people to take it easy uh, on each other. Yes. Uh, so himself, sallallahu the, alayhi the, the highest mahar that he paid to one of his wife was actually was paid on his behalf. Was paid on his behalf by the Najashi, who was the king of uh, the Abyssinia, right. when the Prophet ﷺ proposed to Um Habiba. Mm-hmm. So it was the king who offered the mahar on behalf of the Prophet ﷺ. So obviously it was the status of a king. Sure. So he gave he gave her gold, right? Obviously. But the other was with the Prophet ﷺ was something symbolic as well. We kind of fast forward throughout history. And is there like a time period when it actually shifted over to the idea of demanding much more than that? I think it's evolved over time and it fluctuates, okay. of course, throughout the history of, yani, of, of the Ummah. depends on sure. the economic status and the situation. Like we see one of the spikes maybe that happened in the time of Umar bin Khattab immediately. Uh, although the story is kind of disputable in terms of authenticity, but it's given a window about the situation, the economic situation. We can remember the time of the Prophet ﷺ, economically speaking, the society was, you know, very simple and basic. But with the conquest, especially in the era of, Ubaq- of Umar bin Khattab, like the treasures of, of, of Egypt and, and Sham and Yemen and, 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 and Iraq and Persia, all arrived in Medina. Mm-hmm. So people, they have so much money. It seems at some point, people started kind of like raising the prices of the mahar. That uh, the the situation was given to Abu Khattab and he wanted to cap the the, the amount of mahar. So the story goes on that when Umar he mentioned that uh, one of the ladies she she got up and she said, "Qarata, yeah, how how dare you? How dare you put a cap on the mahar when Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says in the Quran, and and, and you're given one of them a treasure." Mm-hmm. So Umar Dilawan he immediately he remembered and he goes, "You know what? I I take it back." Umar lied, or actually Umar was mistaken, sure. and the lady was correct. Again, depends on the, the, the authenticity of the story, but it shows how the economic situation immediately pushed people to offer more and demand more. Yeah. How far did it go up high? Allahu alam. But then I would assume it fluctuates based on the economic sure. status of the area and the community and the geography of the land. The mahar is not actually a sum that's given for some future event like a divorce where the wife can be sustained. it's mm-hmm. It seems like what you're saying is it's basically just a symbolic gift that you're given at the time of marriage, irrespective mm-hmm. of what happens in the future. That's the original idea of the mahar itself, mm-hmm. that it's supposed to be given as a bridal gift uh, uh, in advance. Okay. I, I mean, even the, even that can be can be noticed from, from the hukum of the mahar itself. Is it rukun? Like, is it that a mandatory aspect of the, of the marriage contract of the nikah? Is it... Uh, um, an annexed, you know, amount that just doesn't really affect the validity of the nikah and so on. The ulama, they have different opinion on that regard. I see. The majority of the fuqaha, they say it's not one of the pillars of the nikah, which means if the nikah happens and the mahar wasn't paid, the, the nikah is still valid. However, the mahar still needs to be paid anyway. 
Why? Because they believe it's to be one of the, the, uh, the automatic consequences of a valid nikah. So in the case when a mahar was not paid, out of maybe ignorance or maybe whatever the reason why, uh, how, do we, how do we calculate the mahar? The ulama, they say you calculate the mahar uh, by maharul mithil. Meaning you look in what is customary in that area, what is customary in the family of that bride, what is known to be the common standard of mahar in that region, then we pay that amount. Or at least we mandate that the, the bride, he pays her that amount. So uh, from this example, as, as you see, uh, the mahar is not necessarily a pillar of the nikah that makes it valid or invalid, but it's still one of the consequences. Some of the fuqaha, they say no, like in the Maliki, for example, school, they consider it to be a, a, an integral pillar of the nikah itself. If it wasn't paid, then the nikah itself starts falling, falling apart. Because of that, a lot of matters of, of the mahar uh, can also be cultural. What does that mean? The idea is to give the mahar. Now, how much, uh, when to pay, to pay that, and how much do you owe at the beginning and so on, that's an issue of different cultural arrangement. And the fuqaha, they, they have difference of opinion in regards to splitting the mahar to an advanced amount and a deferred amount. So, But the, uh, the majority said it's okay. You can defer an amount of mahar, but it's still considered part of the mahar anyway. Okay. So usually, in, in culturally speaking, in many, many people, what they do at the beginning, they, they put a symbolic amount. This is you pay, for example, uh, $100, for instance, or a uh, prayer rug or something like that, or give her a copy of the mushaf. But then they, they put at the end, you know, in that, in that mahar, or that actually deferred mahar, uh, an outrageous amount, say 150000 200000 something like that. Why? Because they want to use that amount as an outlay money for her. Mm. So the concept of the deferred mahar is what is known today as an alimony in the case of divorce. The difference is that in the Islamic system, it's better to pay it once as a one lump sum and get over with it. Here in the American system, the alimony is for as many years as needed based on, of course, the court order with a specific amount. So honestly, the alimony system is really slowing down a lot of uh, uh, healing, uh, yani heart and healing relationships. Sure. Because if a person, they get divorced and now they realize they have to pay for the next seven years. Uh, it's, we're not talking about child support. We talk about alimony, for example, here. So they're going to have to keep paying it for five years every month. They keep seeing that yeah. coming out of their paycheck, for example, and so on. It's really painful. It's kind of detrimental to the whole process of divorce and healing and moving on. Versus if someone, they have $20,000 as a deferred mahar, for example. An entire lump sum of 20000 here you go, and we're done with that. So we don't have to go after each other for a very long time. So now we are coming to the modern concept and, and really talking about the mahar in this case. And that's that's a good point that you mentioned, uh, where now the distinction is made that it is somewhat of a future protection for the wife, right? Uh, I mean, in case of divorce so or an ex-wife at the time, when, however no, you're, no. you're looking at it. So now it's it's become more common, you would say, to be able to have what's called, I think, in Arabic, mahar, which is no, paid towards the end of it. It's perceived to be in the case of divorce. But Islamically speaking, it's still part of the mahar, which means that if, if a person dies and if it, he had not paid that amount, it goes from the inheritance actually before they even start distributing the, the mirath. Okay, interesting. That's a good point to distinguish between culture and, and Islamically because that is a right on the woman to be able sure. to get that sometime when, while she's alive. Unless she forfeits that right sure. uh, herself. Her perfectly right to do because it's her property anyway. To Absolutely. Do that. One thing I want to mention yeah. about the whole concept of muakhar because many people they think of this as a as a more of like a, a safety net, so that in case of divorce, you know, uh, my at least my daughter she will have something to land on. Uh, 
Yeah. Um, that was in a time when most women, they were stay-at-home moms. So they don't have any specific uh, uh, profession, uh, uh, no maybe education, no uh, income outside, of course, of the what the husband sure. provides and so on. So obviously that made a lot of sense. Today, um, when you have dual income household and the lady, she still also have her income and so on. So the high amount of mahar as a deferred mahar is really counterproductive. As a matter of fact, it's even, unfortunately, it slows down uh, the divorce of a um, dysfunctional relationship that makes it even more, much more painful. How, how so? You see, imagine someone who feels entrapped in a relationship that he needs to pay $100,000 as a muakhar, uh, deferred mahar, if la qadra divorce happens, for instance. Mm-hmm. I mean, if the divorce was going with ihsan, meaning alhamdulillah, uh, with in goodness, and they don't want to torture each other because it just it's not working. So they're sure. going to go separate ways, alhamdulillah. That's good. So in this case, he believes that he still owes her the, owes her the money because that was the original agreement, and everybody goes separate ways. So that's that's easy to be done, alhamdulillah. Yeah. But imagine if the man feels that he was wronged in the relationship, and she's the one who's asking for divorce. He's not going to let go of it. It's not just that. He's probably going to, unfortunately, going to abuse her and put so much pressure on her until she forfeits that muakhar, she would call for khulah. Mm. And when she calls for khulah, she's the one who's going to be paying him back what he paid as a mahar instead of him paying her back or paying her actually the deferred mahar. So having that amount so high with the perception it's going to be a safety net for her, that's a false, really false perception. It's not supposed to be the case because we are now starting the relationship with bitter taste even because the mm. guy, he feels that, look, they don't trust me. Maybe rightly so in our time, unfortunately, because of the situation that we're going through, the immaturity when it comes to yeah. how we conduct our relationships, how we understand our marriages and so on. Nevertheless, still, it's not supposed to be that very high so that people don't start going after each other, unfortunately, for a long time. And we never really get to that divorce yeah. with good. That's true. Okay, so let's not kind of break it down into, if you want to call it, quote-unquote, negotiation and those type of things, right? Mm-hmm. So you said the future husband's family is the mm-hmm. one who basically has to pay to the wife because it becomes her property. What is the best method of being able to decide what the mahar is in today's modern world? I want to comment on one thing before we get to this point. Said that It's the room's family, the one that is offering this, of course, uh, mahar. Yeah. There are some, some cultures in some Muslim communities and some Muslim societies around the world where the mahar is paid from the woman to the groom's family. Yes, like that's a traditional dowry. That's the ritual dowry in some cultures where the lady actually is the one who pays the husband as if they're saying to him, thank you for taking care of our daughter for us. Thank you for helping us to get over with this and just taking our daughter from us. Like as if the man, he he has the favor upon them to come and take their daughter away from them and take care of her and spend on his money and so on and so on. Maybe that was in some certain areas because of, you know, economic issues and so on. But Islamic speaking, it's absolutely wrong. Is completely, completely wrong. Now, is it wrong for the woman to bring something with her? Like, you know what? She she buys, let's say, some items, some furniture, some uh, uh, kitchen gadgets, stuff like that, and so on, brings with her. There's nothing wrong with that. But to mandate that as being the mahar, and the man doesn't pay anything for her, he just comes back, mashallah, as the husband, and that's it. That is not acceptable. That's not actually how Islamic marriages are, are performed. That practice was actually a non-Muslim tradition that got embedded within the Muslim culture of the culture we're talking about. So The sad so that part is... still exists today. Yeah, that's right. And unfortunately, in some Muslim communities, they're still practicing in the same tradition, which is absolutely unacceptable. Absolutely, right. 
Now we say that the groom's family is the one that uh, um, presents the mahar for the uh, for the bride. Uh, who decides uh, how much and uh, um, and the value of it and so forth? Well, technically speaking, it's actually it's supposed to be in good faith. Yeah, and in, in good faith, you give whatever you can afford. Um, so if the man, mashallah, is coming from a very wealthy family, the expectation is to offer something of significance of their own status, right? But if the person comes from a very humble background, we're not going to expect from, from him to pay something way beyond his means. Yeah. It shouldn't be beyond his means. So how do we cite that? The fair assessment is by assessing what they call maharul mithil, meaning how much mahar do they receive in the, within their family? Hmm. Let's say their cousins, her uh, her sisters, for example, uh, her sister-in-law, this and that, within that that kind of you know family. How much do they usually receive? We look at the average. Like one of the sisters, maybe she received 15,000, one received 10,000, one received 5,000. Mm -hmm. So the average is 7,000. So it's around that figure, between seven, five, all the way up, for example, 15, and so on. What if a man wants to go beyond and give 50,000? Again, in good faith, from the willingness of his heart, that, this, that that's fine. Um, if he can afford that, alhamdulillah, without any hardship, that is okay. That should be okay, inshallah, tabarakah wa ta'ala. Is it the responsibility of the family or is it the responsibility of the man? And the reason why I ask this is because at the time that a person is 22, 23, getting married, you know, mm -hmm. mashallah, maybe the family is doing really well, but the son actually is still just beginning to start off in life, might still be making a small amount of money eventually to be able to earn more. When I'm looking at it from my daughter's perspective, should I be looking at it from a perspective of the family or the mm -hmm. individual person himself? That's a very good question, actually. As a matter of fact, there is no real determination from the Sharia on which way we do look in this regard. So it goes back again to the culture. But the standard from the Prophet ﷺ, the less the burden, the financial burden to initiate a relationship, the more barakah you'll find in a relationship. Hmm. So we look maybe at both, at the young man and his family. My concern with that, and that's what it's something usually like I always tell the young men when they go propose, said make sure that your family does not put too much money into your marriage. Because if they own the economy, they will account, they will own the policy. <laughs> Good on. Okay. The more contribution they put into your relationship, the more say they think they have in it. So how are you going to run the marriage? How are you going to have the wedding? Was it going to be this way or that way? So there are so many investors, let me put yeah. it this way, yeah. in the relationship. So if the man can independently take care of himself and pay for his mahar, that would be awesome. So no one will have a say in his in his relationship because they feel, well, I paid the 10,000, I, I contribute 50,000 to your mahar, for example, or to your wedding. So it's always better to be at that level. But nowadays, obviously, how many, how many uh, you know, fathers do you think will accept that uh, the man will come to give his daughter a mahar based on his standard, not his family standard? So it goes back again to the cultural standards nowadays. Yeah. The whole stand of the Prophet ﷺ is the less the amount, the less the burden, the better it is, the more barakah you'll find in the relationship, inshallah ta'ala. Yeah. But coming back again to, okay, who decides on the amount right now? Usually, usually, nowadays, nowadays, um, you know, the, the the groom's family, they ask the bride's family, uh, how much would you like us to offer you? Obviously, the girl's family, they would say, whatever you guys can offer from, inshallah ta'ala, from your heart would be good. So that's when the negotiation begins. Obviously, sometimes the family might be blunt about it. Says, you know what, her sister, they get married for twenty thousand dollars, so I don't think we're going to give less than that. Mm. Or the, sometimes they say, well, how much you receive for your daughter's mahar? 
So we wanna, we're not going to make our daughter less than yours, for example. So therefore, you guys give to our daughter what you gave, what, what your daughter has received from her from her, uh, her husband, for example, and so on. So there are a lot of actually arrangements, but all they're all are cultural arrangements. But if there was dispute over what the amount that we should pay, that's when we go to Mahrul Mithil, the custom within that family. So we go by the average. And one thing that I wanted to add to that is we're just talking about dollar amounts, but maybe even like the wedding ring itself sometimes is very expensive, could Absolutely. be considered part of the mahar as well, or anything else that's non-monetary in nature. So anything the groom pays during that engagement period towards the marriage in terms of giving her, giving yeah. the girl, that's part of the money. Mm. So if you, if you pay, for example, if he pays $5,000, let's say diamond ring, and he gives her $5,000 cash, to go and buy, buy, for example, clothes and stuff like that and so on. So they call it kiswa in the Arabic language. Yeah. And they give her $5,000 for maybe for the furniture. So she could go and furnish the apartment the way she wants it to be, for example. Yeah. If you want to pay that. Some people, they do that. Yeah. And then she receives maybe another $5,000, you know, cash in her hand. So if you look at all these amounts right now, some people, they only calculate the final 5000 cash as the mark. Yeah. As for the furniture and the ring and all that stuff, no, 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 there was just gift. Yeah. Well, yeah, but he's not going to give her a gift because of who she is. He's giving yeah. her a gift because of who she, of, of what she is to him in that moment, which is his wife right now. So therefore, this needs to also to be taken into consideration. For me as a guy, I'd be like, you know what? I'm perfectly fine going to the masjid, you know, having Sheikh Yasser do the nikah and let's call it a day and have the walima. Usually, I don't want to speak for everybody, but usually it's the it's the it's the woman who wants the elaborate wedding and and you know parties and those type of things. Could we consider that as part of the mahar as well? No, that doesn't go yeah. into the mahar. Okay, these are just general expenses. He has all the right to say, you know what, I can't afford this. I'm sorry. Okay. If you guys want to do this big, your family has to pay. Does he have the right to say that? Yes. Is it a good move? I don't think it's a smart move. Because once again, the more people put into your marriage, into your wedding, the more say they think they have in it. Sure. So they're going to start influencing, saying this and saying that and so on and so on. Okay. So it's always better to have, subhanAllah, very simple and make it with full barakah. But once again, yeah, culturally speaking, if the people want to make it elaborate, it's up to them. But I don't want people, subhanAllah, to put so much money into it and then they start um, delaying their growth. Why? Because they still have to pay for their catering. They have to pay, you know, of course, back payments for the for the banquet hall and, and the rentals and this yeah. and that. So eventually they're going to probably need two, three years before they're able to recover from that. Sure, Adding sure, sure. Their, their student loans that they have to pay, their Hawaii trip that they had to go through with and so on, all these kind of things, subhanAllah. I mean, I've seen a lot of young young people suffer in the first few years of their marriage because of the financial burden they had to carry along with them to get married. Yeah. You're saying that I could not consider a more elaborate wedding as part of the mahar. Can I do a vacation in Hawaii as a honeymoon part of the mahar? If that's what she wanted. Okay. Like if she said, my mahar, I want you to take me to Hawaii. So okay. in this case, you take her to Hawaii. Okay. If she says, I want my mahar to, you know, uh, uh, pay off my student loans. That becomes the mahar if he, if, if he agrees. Okay. Uh, she might say, I want you to pay off my car. And if he pays off that car, for example, that's part of the mahar as well too. As long as explicitly it was asked to be the mahar, then we're okay with that. Okay. Maybe she and would say, look, I don't want anything from you, but my mahar, I want you to make my uh, uh, my wedding in such and such, for example, banquet hall. If, if that's what she asked for and he agreed to this to be the mahar, then we're good. Okay.
now I know, mashallah, you have a lot of experience in the community and and doing nikah and also just with couples and those type of things. So what have you seen is the common practice? And what do you think is the best practice? You know, we're, we're a very diverse community. So we have the Arab, you have the, 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 the Pakistanis, the Indians, the Bengalis, Africans, you know, uh, uh, many, many different, of course, backgrounds. I cannot say there is one standard, really one standard way of, of doing the mahar. Okay. Every culture has its own unique flavors in it. But overall, they all agree that the mahar supposedly to be paid, of course, or the majority at least, that to be paid from the groom to the bride. Um, and usually they, uh, it's, it's the most common things are two things, cash and jewelry. Few people would, would ask for monetary value, a non-monetary value, uh, mahar. So, for example, promise to go talk to me for umrah or go into hajj or something like that and so on. I haven't seen any many of these of these uh, examples mm-hmm. lately. But it's all about cash or jewelry. Now, um, uh, sometimes people, uh, they just give the full cash. And, and the expectation is that you're going to use this cash to buy the ring that you wanted from me. So if that was the case, then yeah, that the ring, even though he didn't give it as part of the mahar, but he gave the cash yeah. to buy that mahar, then in this case, uh, it counts as as part of that. So the honestly, to say best practice, I can't say there is any specific. It really depends on the culture and the cultural yeah. stand. But overall, the best practice is to make it an easy process. So one thing that I've been thinking about a lot, and I've mentioned this in some other podcasts as well, is talking about the mahar versus doing it up front uh, in giving the, the payment. And if you look at it from the perspective of somebody asking for, and I don't know the math on this, but let's just assuming that if you ask for $5,000 today, as an example, mm. and you mm. say, you know what, as a bride, I'm going to take the money, I'm going to invest it, right? Mm. Just the growth of that is going to be more than if you say, you know what, I'll just take the mahar part of it and I'll take, let's say $20,000 you know, later on down the road. From a compounding mm-hmm. growth perspective, it actually makes more sense for the bride to say, you know what, I'll take a smaller amount now mm-hmm. and I'm just going to invest it or do whatever I want with it and then have the nest egg to be able to fall back on. That's one of the smartest things that people should do. She puts that mahar in an investment account, for example, or maybe if she has an opportunity to put in a business, for example, yeah. and let it grow. That's the best thing that she could do. The problem with that in some cultures, the mahar unfortunately does not go to the bride. Mm. It's taken by the father of the bride. And that is dhulm. Oppression, basically. Oppression, absolutely. Right. It's injustice. It's adul, as it's called in the Quran, which is meaning, again, oppression and injustice as well, too. Because the mahar is supposed to be hers and only hers. If she willingly decided to give it back, that would be okay. You know, sometimes I've, I've heard from some sisters when, unfortunately, some of the guys, after the after the marriage is done, they agree to a high amount. They agree to pay 20000 because her father says, I, we want 50000 for her. Yeah. But that wasn't her request. It was her father's request. His family agreed to it, although they thought there was a big amount and so on. They accepted that. Then later on, in the first maybe weeks or months of the marriage, every time she asked him, hey, can we go to Hawaii? Can we go to this place? He goes, I can't afford this. You know, I paid so much amount for the mahar. I don't have anything left. So what is he telling her exactly? Give me something back. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, banned us from trying that. Hmm. As he says, subhanahu Do not oppress them. Do not pressure them. Do not abuse them until they give you back some of what you have offered them. That's injustice. That's oppression. That's unacceptable. I think it just goes back to the fact that it has to be without any questions, unequivocally, the property of the wife. That's Absolutely. Absolutely.
Absolutely. And I know some people like the jewelry aspect of it, but again, I would say from a financial perspective, taking the cash is better than the jewelry. And the reason mm-hmm. is because even if you get gold and, and diamonds, something like that, it's very difficult to be able to sell all that jewelry. And you're probably mm-hmm. not going to get the price you paid for it whenever it was bought. So, so. I want to also bring one of the unfortunate practices that happens in some cultures, mm-hmm. which is un-Islamic practice, obviously. So um, the mother-in-law, she gifts the daughter-in-law her gold. So she gives her the gold as a bridal gift. So the bride wears the gold on the wedding day, for example, in the walima. And then the next day, that gold disappears. And she never sees that again until she has a girl. She has actually a boy or a girl, and she gives yeah. that to her in her wedding. Mm. That is not acceptable. Yeah. If you give your wife gold or jewelry, even though it was an, an, an ancestry property, that was from my great-great-grandmother, that was given to my grandmother, to give it to my mother, and now it's given to me, so I can give it to my wife, so I can give it to my daughter. No, 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 no. If you consider this gold to be mahar to your bride, it's hers. You have no right to take it back or make it conditional that, hey, we gave it to you as a mahar. Yes, we give it to you as a mahar, but only so that you give it to your daughter in the future or daughter-in-law when you get married. Yeah. That's unacceptable. That is not mahar anymore. You know, nobody wants to think about getting into a marriage and then the first thing you think about is how to get out of it, right? That, that type of thing. But it's important to to prepare for it. And unfortunately living in the age we're living in, that's more of a possibility than maybe it was in the past. For this, we have prenuptial agreements. The, what I've seen from the divorce cases that go into courts and for money is because mm. the wife feels cheated. Mm. But if there was a large enough mahar to be able to maybe not feel that way, maybe mm. that's something that could alleviate some of that, that battle as well. That is in the Maliki school. There's a concept called haqqul kaddi was si'aya, in which they say that uh, if the lady... Uh, let's say, participated in helping her husband with his earning. Or the least she, she did for him is she took care of him and the household on his behalf while he's building his empire. So obviously, she doesn't receive any cash value in her hand except what the husband's providing for her so she can spend on the household, right? Correct. But he's, mashallah, he's now building astronomical figures. So does she have any right in the amount of money that he's collecting while she's taking care of his kids and his household and so on. This becomes much more you know, important to understand in context of a man who gets married and after 20 years, he divorces his wife uh, who has no education, no degree, no job before that to go and marry someone who's 20 years younger than him. It could happen. That's a situation that could happen, right? Uh, so in this case, does she have the right to take more from the money more than just the mu'akhar, especially if the mu'akhar or the deferred mahar was a very symbolic amount as well too. Yeah. And maybe it was even mentioned in a foreign currency that has no value today. So therefore, she's, she feels cheated, obviously. So that's what the arguments today. If she has a, a dollar value for all the service that she provided basically during that time. And that's an issue of argument among the fuqaha today. I don't want to give any conclusive yani, uh, answer to this, to this mas'ala because it's still an issue of debate now. But you said the Malikis had an opinion on this, right? They do, absolutely. They do. Okay. Meaning they, okay. they, they are the one who said actually she does. Because they go back to refer to the ayah when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, for the divorcee, which means actually you give them like a, a parting gift mm-hmm. or a parting amount. Yeah. According to the custom. 
حقاً على المتقين that's a حق that is due in the amount in the in the wealth of the believers or the متقين yeah. the righteous. So the culture back then for a very 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 long time was to pay her the muakhar the deferred money. We live in a time that is different. Back in the days, women they had uh, divorcee awqaf, they had uh, widows awqaf, they had uh, the Islamic mashallah treasury taking care of their expenses and so on from the welfare and all the stuff and so forth. Yeah. We live in a different society. The family structure is not like before. It's not like there's a tribal system taking care of their widows and divorcees when they actually when they leave their homes. So therefore, there's a power shift here in the relationship as well too, and also the financial uh, arrangement is different. So can we apply it now bil ma'roof? the new customs of our time into this into this discussion that's when haqqul kaddi comes handy actually yeah. uh, wow this has been a really great discussion alhamdulillah jazakallah khair for for taking the time um can you think of anything that maybe i haven't haven't thought about the very important thing obviously is making sure that when people think about mahar they don't they should not be thinking of it as a social security or a, or a safety net or uh, any of that nature. They should really, really look at it as just like the Prophet Sallallahu yani, wanted it to be, uh, to be a symbolic thing, uh, just a, a show of commitment. And and that would be it. Hmm. Uh, like in the story of Abdurrahman ibn Awf, عنه, when he came from Mecca to Medina, and he had nothing during the Hijrah. In one week, he was wearing nice, and he was smelled beautiful, and the Prophet said, Bakh and Bakh, mashallah, mashallah, what's, what's going on? He goes, yeah, so that's the worst. I got married. He goes, mashallah, in one week, that was great. So did you give her something? He gave her the amount, the, the weight of a, a date stone in gold, which means he was mashallah, wealthy enough to give this amount in such yeah. a very good week. So I just want to emphasize again on the idea of keeping it simple and keeping it, alhamdulillah, for the, with the intention of the barakah. It's not really about you know a, a bargaining chip in the relationship. It's rather just a sign of good faith and commitment. Wallahu on one side of it is do it in good faith, something that's reasonable and with the family. On the other side is we talked about this idea of in, in current times, the woman does need a nest egg. How do you balance the two, right? That's that's the whole argument. Somebody might say, if I'm doing it in good faith, maybe you know a token of $500 as a mahar would be fine. But $500, to be honest with you, like 10 years from now, is still not going to be worth enough to be able to, to do it. Absolutely. But you need that in, in today's modern society because of the social benefits that were there before are not there anymore. How do you weigh the two? It's different because again, yani you need to keep keep in mind we don't want to also ruin the the, the relationship from the very beginning because everybody's is, is freaking out because the higher rate of divorce right now, so we have to secure our daughters and then we have to keep you know higher amount in the in the deferred mark to deter the guys from divorcing them easily and this and that. It's counterproductive, really. It's not going to happen. And it's also so, a negative feedback loop, right? You you give uh, a lot thinking of divorce. You're living in resentment and you get a divorce. It's a vicious cycle, unfortunately. Yeah. Maybe what happened was that, you know, the bride doesn't ask for the mar or or doesn't pursue it. And then later on, let's say 10 years, 15 years from now, she's like, wait a minute, I never asked for it in the very beginning. I, I demand this now. Is that something that's valid? It happens. And I've received many cases like these when, in which the lady, she never received a mahar because she didn't know any better. So yeah. later on, when she understood that, hey, there's something called mahar. So she was asking for it. Also, another example is that the guy, he promised to give the mahar, but he never gave the mahar. And now it's been years. And the man is now saying that, well, I, I spent this for you. I take you on these vacations and gave you these gifts and so on. So shouldn't it be that sufficient to cover for the mahar? Mm. The answer is no. Because again, the mahar has to be what? Complete gift for her. So uh, it's still considered uh, a debt that he needs to pay her, even if it actually goes 10, 15 years later in life. What about the first point, which is she didn't know she could have asked? He still owes her the mahar. 
them because again, the mahr is actually a natural consequence of a valid nikah. Well, I think we're misunderstanding here. What I'm saying is like the, the wife never knew to ask, so she didn't ask. Mm -hmm. Ten years later, she's like, oh, I didn't know there's such a thing as a mahr. I should make it 10,000. She can't decide on the amount actually, but she definitely has the right to demand it because, hey, I didn't know back then. Now I know better that I actually I should have actually received the mahar, but I never received received anything. No one okay. told me anything about this. So in this case, if if her case is proven to be true, uh, and the husband says honestly, yeah, but she never asked for it, then in this case he agrees that he never paid her mahar. Mm. So okay, in this case you need to pay her mahar. You pay her okay. mahar based on the amount, of course, that was maybe at that time, give it the average amount. Yeah. Okay. So what wow. you're basically saying is like, for example, the wali of the wife negotiates on behalf of her and says, okay, the mother is going to be X amount of dollars. The wife never knew that this was negotiated. She mm -hmm. just signed the mm -hmm. contract and was done. 10 years later, mm -hmm. she's going through her paperwork and she says like, oh, what is this? This is my nikah contract. Oh, wait, this says $10,000 was supposed to be owed to me. I didn't mm -hmm. know about it. Now I'm demanding it. Like, for example, uh, uh, convert sisters who they get married and they have no idea how the Islamic marriage works. So the man doesn't bring the issue of mahar, you know, at the time of the, the nikah. Uh, it was never mentioned to her. And then later on, she gets to become more educated. And she realizes, like, wait a minute, what is it? I don't think he gave me anything on that day. And when she asks him and he goes, well, you never asked for anything. Or maybe he also was ignorant, didn't even know that he needs supposed, supposed to give her mahar. So we go back again to do mahar al-mithil, what is customary in that situation. We give her an amount equivalent to that. Okay. There are times when you're young and you're in love or whatever it is, you know, you say, well, mm -hmm. okay, I'll marry you only for a dollar. Right. Mm -hmm. And later on, 10 years, 15 years, you think back and you're like, well, that wasn't really just, I should have asked for more, or you should have told me because you were more, more educated or older than I was, or my mm -hmm. wali should have done this. They should have asked for more. Can mm -hmm. we change then at that time? If the wali approved it at that time, then no, because we assume that it was given in good faith and they didn't want to have any burden on the, on the okay. groom at the time. But if the groom, of course, you know, uh, uh, he realized, subhanAllah, she was gracious with him that not to ask for so much for the mahar, he should be very gracious with her and give her a gift for a lifetime. Sure. Forget about mahar right now. Yeah. But of course, being any kind to her for the rest of his life. Yani, Are there any aspects of mahar that people don't think about Islamically or, or do you just totally forget about that you want to comment on? Yeah, subhanAllah, uh, you know, a lot of us living in this uh, uh, materialistic world, we always have our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, a transactional relationship. And we think of our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in numbers, like one plus one equals two. Yani you need to read the Quran to get this many hasanat and so on and so on. So even sometimes when we deal with people, we also deal with the same formula, like we expect one plus one equals two. But with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, things don't work like that. One plus one does not have to be two, really. It could be a million, it could be a thousand. Why? Because there's an element called barakah. So when we put the, the amount of mahar, people always think of the numbers, uh, 10,000, 5,000, you know, 100,000, because it's it's all what the, what's on their mind is just the actual monetary value yeah. of the mahar, of the relationship, of that stuff, and so on. What we don't pay attention to is the non-disclosed amount of barakah that would come with a less mahar. So as a Muslim, whenever I decide on the mahar, I need to put that into consideration as well, too. Would 10,000 give me barakah? better than 5,000 or 100,000. So I need to also keep in my mind the concept of barakah, which is why we say that the, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi recommends for us, barakah. the less the burden, the financial burden, obviously, the more the barakah, the more the blessing. So that's something people need to take into consideration whenever they decide on the mahar. I mean, we talked about this earlier, just the barakah and the fact that there's the, the, the groom 
doesn't feel a burden. Nope. You know, he, he, there, there can be a better marriage when there's no resentment or anything along those lines. Just Absolutely. a simple, some simple aspect of that, which, which, which is, which is very true. Alhamdulillah. I really appreciate your time and in, in spending it with us and, no. and really explaining that the concept, the practice, and no. what is fair and what's not fair. Jazakallah khair for that. Thank you for listening to Halal Money Matters. If you like what you hear, please do rate us on the app stores and also leave us a review. It helps other people find us a lot easier. This podcast is prepared based on information Saturna Capital deems reliable. However, Saturna Capital does not warrant the accuracy or completeness of the information. We do not provide tax, accounting, or legal advice to our clients, and all investors are advised to consult with their tax, accounting, or legal advisors regarding any potential investment. Investors should not assume that investments in the securities and or sectors described were or will be profitable. Investors should consult with a financial advisor prior to making an investment decision. The views and information discussed in this commentary are at a specific point in time, are subject to change, and may not reflect the views of the firm as a whole. All material presented in this publication, unless specifically indicated otherwise, is under copyright to Saturna. No part of this publication may be altered in any way, copied or distributed without the prior express written permission of Saturna Capital.